0: Today's Binge Mode is brought to you by Dell. The Dell XPS 13 with an Intel Core i7 processor is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. That's you, binge heads. That's right. With lifelike color. Brilliant sound clarity.
1: Oh! And smooth streaming. Keep it smooth. Dell Cinema technology
0: makes whatever you love to watch... Oh, yeah. ...even better. Call 800-BY-DELL to learn more or visit dell.com slash cinema. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. That's right. If you like Victor the Dictor, have ever flown in specifically to a wedding just to see what your old flame is up to, well, you might want to turn away from this podcast because we'll be discussing topics (laughs) such as that. But if that's the kind of thing you're into, please uh, stay tuned for Binge Mode. But if not, check out one of the other podcasts from the Fine Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Yes. Binge Mode contains
1: spoilers. Uh Uh-huh. If you don't yet know why we're calling Harry Barney or
0: Barry. The cousin. Please proceed (laughs) with extreme caution. And now, binge mode.
1: Scrimgeour turned back to the will. To Harry James Potter, he read, and Harry's insides contracted with a sudden excitement. I leave
0: the snitch he caught in his first Quidditch match at Hogwarts as a remainder of the rewards of perseverance and skill. As
1: Scrimgeour pulled out the tiny, walnut-sized golden ball, its silver wings fluttered rather feebly, and Harry could not help feeling a definite sense of anticlimax.
0: Why did Dumbledore leave you this snitch? asked Scrimgeour. No idea, said Harry. Oh, sorry, I had a snitch in my mouth. Yeah!
1: <laughs> and welcome to Binge Mode. Harry Potter. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of The TheRinger.com. Oh, what a great website. Fabulous website. What a week on our website. Big week for a big boy website. That's a big website. That is a
0: big website. <laughs>
1: oh. Joining me today... Now that he's finished asking, what is
0: the point of being an international Quidditch player if all the good-looking girls are taken? What a fucking flex by Victor (laughs) the Dictor.
1: It's Ringer Senior Creative and your headmaster, new
0: beard and all, Jason Concepcion. Mal, this girl is very nice-looking. She is also a relative of yours? (laughs) She does also listen to Binge Mode Harry Potter? where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not you believe you ought to wear sun colors to a wedding, shouts to Xenophilius. Love that dude. (laughs) For luck, you know. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and view us. Five points and stars for Binge Mode. Please feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans which is an excellent place to post your favorite bit of high heat from the homie, Auntie Muriel. Just throw in flames. Calm down, Auntie Muriel. <laughs> like, please. Head over to the slash shop to check out our new Binge Mode merch. Yes. Not everything there is suitable for a wedding. No goblin tiaras, but great stuff for fleeing from one. Yes. Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter. We explored how the cost of war
1: shapes chapters 4 through 6 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 7 and 8. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep, deep. On details from all seven books and eight films on the wider
0: Ah! wider Potter canon. That was my ghoul impression.
1: (laughs) Taking the entire series into account from the moment we meet with the minister.
0: So press that snitch right to your
1: lips. Mm, that's right. Because it's time to start cracking codes.
0: Mal, here's your present. Unwrap it here. It's not for my producer's eyes. And when you finish, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hallow's chapters 7 and 8 by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of Plot the Hogwarts Express. Takes You
1: Happy seventeenth birthday, Yay! Harry! Yay!
0: You're a man now. And Ginny has quite the gift mm. for the occasion. Hello. She's exploring every facet of the Harry Potter <laughs> in her mouth. But later that day, after Ron has so rudely barged in on their makeout sesh, another interruption appears in the form of a bedraggled Minister of Magic, Rufus Scrimgeour. He's brought the contents of Dumbledore's will to the Burrow, and thus. A
1: gift Mm -hmm. for Ron, Hermione, and Harry.
0: And the next day is Bill and Fleur's wedding, and a disguised Harry speaks to Elphias Doge and Auntie Muriel at the reception, where he learns some speculative but horrifying details about Albus Dumbledore's past. The party ends abruptly, however, when
1: Kingsley Shacklebolt's Patronus arrives in the middle of the dance floor and announces that the Ministry has fallen, Scrimgeour is dead, and the Death Eaters are on their way.
0: Mal, yeah, I don't think there's anything hidden in the icing, and that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 7 and 8 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is Puzzles.
1: Chapter 7, The Will of Albus Dumbledore. We open in a dream, a vision, on a mountain road at dawn looking down at a small town, wondering about a man, longing for him, for answers. And then we wake with Harry, scar-prickling. Ron tells Harry he was muttering the name Grigorovich in his sleep. And Harry has a vague idea that he's heard the name before, but he can't place it. Readers, though, surely can. We heard the name in Goblet of Fire during the weighing of the wands, when Mr. Ollivander examined Crumb's hornbeam and heart string instrument and said this is a grigorovitch creation unless i'm much mistaken a fine wand maker though the styling is never quite what i however <laughs> harry retains enough of the dream to deduce that voldemort is looking for this grigorovitch fellow to quote ron poor bloke and that he's doing so abroad. The Valley Vista doesn't look like anywhere in Britain, according to Harry, a renowned traveler who's definitely capable of making this deduction. I know, it's
0: incredible. Geography master Harry Potter. has been like four places, ever. That doesn't look like England. (laughs) Based on what?
1: (laughs) Ron asks of Harry seeing into Voldemort's mind again, and Harry, betraying that he knows it's wrong, immediately asked Ron not to tell Hermione. <laughs> Quote, Although how she expects me to stop seeing stuff in my sleep. Well, buddy, that's what the whole occlumency thing was for. Though in Harry's defense, his, I don't like it much, but it's been useful, hasn't it, line of reasoning for Mordor of the Phoenix will apply quite often throughout the course of Deathly Hallows. As this reopened connection allows Harry to discover, among other crucial things, how Voldemort eventually gets the Elder Wand. What happened, from Voldemort's perspective, that night long ago in Godric's Hollow, and that the final Horcrux, or at least what Voldemort and Harry believe is the final Horcrux, is at Hogwarts. In Half-Blood Prince, Dumbledore told Harry, who was stumped by the cessation of his mental portal with Voldemort, that the Dark Lord had begun to employ occlumency against him, against Harry. So what's changed? Why is Harry seeing into Voldemort's mind again? It's a mystery to Harry here fueled, as JKR has since clarified, by Voldemort's loss of control. A loss of control stemming from his worry and fury over his inability to solve a riddle of his own, why another wand didn't work against Harry's, and whether Grigorovich holds the answers he now seeks. We will learn in time that Voldemort is after the Elder Wand, which Ollivander has told him Grigorovich possessed. And here already, We can see the Russian nesting doll-like layering of puzzles within puzzles, all building toward the wand lore mastery enigma that Harry, but not
0: Voldemort, will be able to solve. All Harry can additionally piece together here is that he thinks the name Grigorovich has something to do with Quidditch. The wand weighing clarity won't come to Harry until seeing Crumb in person at the wedding in the next chapter, but the deep recesses of his mind are pairing the wand maker's name with Crumb international seeker sensation here from the book sure you're not thinking of gorgovich ron asks illuminating harry to the existence of the chaser who transferred to the chudley cannons for a record fee only to set the record for most quaffle drops in a season this guy feels like he has some jr smith-esque <laughs> yeah. meme bracket potential <gasps> maybe some nick young too yes yeah, certainly man if they were <laughs> memes actually you know like a lot of the wizarding world photographs are basically gifts. it's true no, said Harry, I'm definitely not thinking of Gorgovich. I try not to either, said Ron. Well, happy <laughs> birthday anyway. At which point, Harry, my boy, realizes he's now Harry, a man. <laughs> the chosen one is 17. Our guy immediately grabs his wand and starts doing pointless magic just because he can, which is extremely relatable to anyone who's Absolutely. ever hit 18 or 21. You hit that age, you're like, I'm going to go, buy whatever it is. Wouldn't we all do exactly this the second we could? Harry isn't apparating into bedrooms like Fred and George, but he does summon his glasses from a foot away right into his eyeball. Slick, snorted Ron. Harry sends objects zooming all over Ron's room, ties his shoelaces by magic, and turns the robes on Ron's Chudley Cannon's poster, blue. i do your fly by hand, Ron says. <laughs> okay, great. Ron's iconic run continues. Great couple of chapters for one. Just need a jingle update, Jonathan, man. Come on.
1: Great couple chapters for Ron. No, no, no.
0: Juan Juan has more than jokes, though. He has a present, a key to solving the greatest puzzle of them all. Love. <laughs> Unwrap it up here, he says. It's not for my mother's eyes. The
1: MILF can handle it, Mother I the milk, promise. The MILF
0: has seen some shit. <laughs> Ron, come on. It's still got the marks. You still left the marks on your father. Harry's stunned to see a book from Ron, recently seen diminishing the value of the written world by mocking Hermione's Horcrux hunt prep with, oh, of course I forgot we'll be hunting down Voldemort in a mobile library <laughs> line. But as Ron says, this is not your average book. It's a love manual. <laughs> he says, it's pure gold. 12 fail-safe ways to charm witches. Explains everything you need to know about girls. If only I had this last year and I'd have known exactly how to get rid of lavender and I would have known how to get going with, well, <laughs> Fred and George gave me a copy and I've learned a lot. You'd be surprised. It's not all about wand work either. It's like it's disturbingly line. like a like a pickup artist manual, but I digress. Ron Weasley, ladies and gentlemen, is solving the riddle of the heart, and perhaps even more shockingly, of the loins. That's to come. Literally. Just like Ron. <laughs>
1: It's not all about wand work either, is just an iconic double entendre from J.K. Some very good. True chef's kiss stuff right there. Harry finds a heaping hall of presents waiting for him. A positively Dudley-esque yield. Arthur's not there because he had to head into work early. But Molly presents their gift on behalf of both of them. It's a gold watch with stars circling the face instead of clock hands. It's tradition, Mrs. Weasley explains, to give a wizard a watch when he comes of age. She's looking at Harry anxiously as she says, I'm afraid that one isn't new like Ron's. It was actually my brother Fabian's. And he wasn't terribly careful with his possessions. It's a bit dented on the back, but the passage continues. The rest of her speech was lost. Harry had got up and hugged her. He tried to put a lot of unsaid things into the hug. What a truly touching moment. And one rife with subtext. Consider where we've heard Fabian's name before. From... Mad-Eye Moody in Order of the Phoenix as he ran through the faces in the photo of the original Order of the Phoenix. Some living, more dead. Quote, Gideon Pruitt, it took five Death Eaters to kill him and his brother Fabian. They fought like heroes. Molly's brothers fought against Voldemort, just as Harry is doing now. They paid the ultimate price, just as everyone in Molly's family risks doing every day right now. It's an incredible honor to receive this gift that once belonged to such a person. A reminder for Harry that this war isn't new and won't be easily won. A reminder, too, as Dumbledore told him, fight and fight again and keep fighting. And it's a reminder as well of the cost that war brings. Consider as well the role reversal at play here. In this one instance, the watch gifting upon one's 17th name day. Ron received the shiny new toy, while Harry received the hand-me-down. But Harry, who would gladly trade all the galleons in his vault to be with his parents and godfather who left it there, doesn't for a moment view this as a secondhand gesture. He knows that it's an incredible treasure, another declaration in the form of a parent's role in this proud magical custom of the Weasley's undying love, even, indeed, especially in times of guilt and tension and strife. As the questions in Harry's life mount and the search for clarity becomes increasingly complex and high stakes, This, at least, remains unambiguous, never in doubt. The Weasleys are Harry's family. Harry's attachment to this watch will not be fleeting. When Harry, 19 years after the events of Deathly Hallows in the epilogue of the book, checks the time to ensure that his sons board the Hogwarts Express on time, he looks not at the clock in the station, but at the watch on his wrist. Fabian Pruitt's.
0: Hermione got Harry a new sneakerscope. Bill and Fleur got him an enchanted razor. Ah, yes. This will give you the smoothest shave you will ever have, says Fleur's dad. Especially on your balls. You've got to keep that clean for Ginny. You've got to be good to her, you understand? You don't want her picking her teeth. Oh, my God. Make it smooth down there. That's how I got the villa with me. The villa had never seen anything like this before. The Decor's got him chocolates. The Twins got him a huge box of their merchandise, which technically he's <laughs> already paid for. Yeah. I, we need to talk to Harry about, like, what percentage he's getting from this business because it better be something. I don't think he thought to ask about, like, an equity stake. <laughs> <laughs> Just a hunch. Uh, Hermione scoops up the hall and tells Harry that she'll pack it up for him. I'm nearly done. (laughs) I'm just waiting for the rest of your underpants to come out of the wash. Ron! (laughs) Poor Molly having to wash Ron's jizz-dribbled drawers. (laughs) Do you notice a name missing from the above list of gift givers, dear listener? (gasps) Ginevra Weasley, it transpires, intends to give Harry his coming-of-age present in private. Hopefully after he's used that razor. <laughs> she summons Harry into her room, leaving her mind to pull the halting Ron away and looks at him. Lock that door, Ginny, but you forget to. <laughs> Damn it. From the book. He, however, found it difficult to look back at her. It was like gazing into a brilliant light. She ignores his feeble small talk about the view. Like He's actually like, oh, wow, it's like an incredible view. <laughs> and says she couldn't think what to get him for his birthday. How to solve this conundrum? What's the right gift for a strapping young chosen one who's about to be on the move? She continues, then I thought, I'd like you to have something to remember me by. <laughs> oh you yeah. Know, if you meet some villa when you're off doing whatever you're doing. Harry says, I think dating opportunities are going to be pretty thin on the ground, uh, to be honest. There's the silver lining I've been looking for, she whispered.
1: This is so good.
0: And listeners, this next stretch is why we have an adult content warning (laughs) from the book. And then she was kissing him, and she had never kissed him before. What were they doing then all that time? And Harry was kissing her back, and it was blissful oblivion better than fire whiskey. She was the only real thing in the world. Ginny, the feel of her. One <laughs> hand at her back and one in her long, sweet smelling hair. Her head had hair on her head. You understand? Oh, God. <laughs> she wasn't using the razor yet, but he'd show it to her after. <laughs> Devastatingly, oh, the full erotic fiction this <laughs> promises is cruelly <laughs> interrupted by Ron taking a page from the Prince movie Dumbledore's cock-blocking book and casting Phallus Protego! And <laughs> Harry's throbbing full by barging into the room without knocking with the feeblest of, oh, sorry, fucking imaginable. Hermione runs in behind him out of breath uh. from trying to salvage things. Like, where did he start running 40 yards away? And she, <laughs> I don't understand the geography of this. But not as out of breath as Harry who's currently trying to tuck his boner into, like, under the pleats of his pants (laughs) from the book. It felt as though a cold draft had entered the room when the door opened. Tell me about it! (laughs) Sadly, not a cold shower, which Harry will be needing at this point.
1: Oh, my God. The only thing more painful than Harry's blue balls is what is actually transpiring in this moment. Ron's ears are red, Hermione looks nervous, and Ginny's voice is flat when she speaks. Harry feels as though, quote, his shining moment had popped like a soap bubble. Suddenly, his reasons for breaking things off with Ginny after Dumbledore's funeral wash over him anew. Quote, all happy forgetfulness was gone. He follows Ron out of the room and into the yard, Hermione by their side. And as soon as they're clear of the house, Ron reveals the source of his interference. He doesn't want to see Ginny get hurt again. You ditched her, he says. What are you doing now, messing her around? And when Harry and Hermione both protest, Ron plows on, saying how wounded Ginny was when things ended. And Harry says, I was hurt too. Quote, you know why I stopped it, and it wasn't because I wanted to. When Ron points out that Harry's actions of a moment ago are bound to get Ginny's hopes up, I must note here, by the way, never accounting for the fact that Ginny instigated this and Ginny is going after what this she is the, wants.
0: This is also, it's the lamest of excuses for this action. Like, also, let your sister run her own life. Like, she doesn't need you, Ron, super virgin, I'm reading a book on how to kiss a girl extraordinaire <laughs> riding in on his fucking white knight horse and being like, how dare you? Acting this way with my sister, dishonoring her when you had But only... listen Ron. It's a tough look for Ron. It does come from a good place. It's actually—it's quite sweet it is in one a way. Of the, it is actually the reason that I'm not like, "What a dick." Is it's—it's it's a very human moment. Like yeah. this is a thing that I think people in their regular lives have experienced or seen happen or understand when this is happening. Yeah, like, it's a
1: protective instinct, yeah. and also he does know what it feels like when you want to be with somebody and you can't, and you're tortured by that. Right. And he doesn't want that happening for Ginny. Right.
0: Also, Ron's version of that was like, I'm getting blowjobs from Lavender <laughs> when I really want to be with Hermione. What do I? How do I break up with her?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not great that his like the first thing he says about the book is, it would have told me how to ditch Lavender. <laughs> it's very tough. That's <laughs> not the best. Guess we should amend our prior statement. Tough couple chapters for Ron. (laughs) You take the good with the bad, It's the bad. Ron is the best. love Ron. This is a mixed moment. Harry says in reply, she's not an idiot. She knows it can't happen. She's not expecting us to to end up married or... Now, on a reread, this line stands out like xenophilious, love-good, sun-colored garb at a wedding. Because Harry and Ginny will, of course, actually get married. But here and now, Harry truly cannot fathom that kind of future. As he says these words aloud about marriage, he pictures Ginny, quote, in a white dress marrying a tall, faceless, and unpleasant stranger. In one spiraling moment, it seemed to hit him. Her future was free and unencumbered, whereas his, he could see nothing but Voldemort ahead. The quandaries facing Harry aren't just the practical questions and mysteries unfolding every moment. They're existential, concerned with the very nature of his humanity and his existence, When Harry and Dumbledore speak in King's Cross later in this book, Dumbledore will say, do not pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living and above all, those who live without love. In one of the story's most tragic inversions, Harry, who's heard from Dumbledore time and again that his love and his choices are his greatest strengths, believes that right now he has to choose to live without love.
0: Ginny and Harry don't share any more one-on-one time before his birthday dinner, which takes place in the garden now that Charlie, Hagrid, Lupin, and Tonks have joined the already sizable burrow crowd. Purple and gold decorations adorn the yard. Raven's colors. That's right. Nice, Ron tells Hermione after she turns the crab apple tree gold. You've really got an eye for that sort of thing. <laughs> twelve fail-safe ways coming through the clutch. <laughs> turns out one of those earth-shaking revelations in twelve fail-safe ways is... Say nice things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Compliments.
0: Man, it's like, what a fucking groundbreaking revelation. Mrs. Weasley comes out with Harry's birthday cake, a massive iced snitch. That's great stuff. Incredible. Harry observes that Lupin, though smiling upon greeting Harry, quote, looked rather unhappy. It was all very odd. Tonks behind him looked simply radiant. We'll realize a few chapters from now that this behavior stems from Tonks's pregnancy, Tonks, who wanted to be with Remus despite his lycanthropy and isolation, is overjoyed to be building a family with the man she loves. Remus, who felt himself too old and broken and tainted for Tonks, is filled with terror over whether he's allowed what he thinks is a weakness, his own desire and passion to potentially endanger his unborn child. From the book, Tonks deserves somebody young and whole, he said in Prince. Don't you understand what I've done to my wife and unborn child? He'll scream at Harry later in Hallows, I should never have married her. I've made her an outcast. In moments like this, as Harry and Lupin shake hands, Lupin's shrouded state can seem bewildering, a confounding contrast to those around him. But in the instances when that shroud lifts and he opens up to Harry and us, we see so clearly how his pain, isolation, and fear have tormented and warped him, making him feel unworthy of this kind of love.
1: Hagrid naturally is emotional, just as I am, because Jason has asked me to attempt to do Hagrid voice work. <laughs> 17, eh? <laughs> said Hagrid as he accepted a bucket-sized glass of wine from Fred. Six years to the day since we met, Harry. Do you remember it? Vaguely, said Harry, grinning up at him. Didn't you smash down the front door give Dudley a pig's tail and tell me I was a wizard? I forget the details. There follows an awkward moment in which Hagrid mentions the baby unicorns keeping him busy and says he'll show them once they're back at school. Their plan to drop out of Hogwarts isn't even known to a dear friend like Hagrid are all the members of the Order of the Phoenix. Secrecy is paramount right now. Which makes the birthday gift Hagrid has for Harry all the more clutch. It's a mokeskin pouch. Small and slightly furry, just like Harry. Until he uses that razor. <laughs> Hello!
0: <laughs> and smooth as a seal. Fresh out of the water.
1: <laughs> Slick! With a drawstring for the wearing. It's the object... You realize here, mm-hmm. hanging from Harry's neck in the scholastic cover art, an object that readers obsessed over in the wait for Hallows, wondering, looking at this artwork, if it could be the locket or some other item of import and intrigue. The nature of this illustrated item was a secret. And the pouch itself, we learn, is made for concealing secrets. Hide anything in there and no one but the owner can get it out, says Hagrid. They're rare, them. Later. Harry will fill the pouch with the Marauder's Map, the mirror shard, and the locket. And in time, he'll add the snitch, Lily's letter and photo, and the fragments of his own wand. The Invisibility Cloak and Marauder's Map have been such essential tools for Harry, in part Mm -hmm. because they've allowed him to avoid detection, safeguarded him, his friends, and his missions. Hagrid's gift is another such aid. It's contents inaccessible
0: and bamboozling to would-be foes. They're waiting for Arthur, but before the man arrives, his warning does via a message-carrying Patronus. His, a weasel. Minister of Magic, coming with me. Lupin immediately flees, saying that he and Tonks should not be there, that he's sorry, and he'll explain later. In the time it takes Molly to ask why on earth the ministry would be coming to her home, he appears with Arthur, and guess what? Except for the same reason he was the last time he showed up, uninvited at the borough during a special occasion for Harry. As the minister approaches, Harry observes that he looks like trash. Yes. Much older than when last they saw each other which was, you know, only a month ago, a month, very tough. The toll of Scrimgeour's job is considerable. He apologizes for intruding on the special occasion and wishes Harry a quite hollow, many happy returns, and his (laughs) eyes linger on the snitch cake. In mere pages, we'll realize this is because of the snitch he's about to give Harry and the reinforced significance the cake choice presents, the certainty it builds in his mind that these gifts from Dumbledore are more than mere fond endowments. There's something behind them. I require a private word with you, he says to Harry and then shocks the assembled by adding, also with Mr. Ronald Weasley and Mr. Hermione Granger. Us, said Ron, (laughs) sounding surprised. Why us? Ron. Play it cool. Shut it. And just watch. It's fine. (laughs) Scrimger is even grimmer than usual, dispensing with the transparent but still present coyness he employed last holiday when he clumsily asked Harry, quote, that young man, to give him a tour of the garden (laughs) and employing no pretense, as he says to Arthur in his own home, there will be no need for you to accompany us. The specific nature of his visit is still unclear, but his manner makes his intentions stark. Ron leads them to the sitting room,
1: Arthur and Molly exchanging worried looks in the receding distance. Harry, knowing that they're all thinking the same thing as he is. Scrum must know that they're planning to drop out of Hogwarts. The minister sits in Arthur's armchair, leaving Harry, Ron, and Hermione to cram into the sofa. And then he says he wants to speak to them individually, asking to talk to Ron first, possibly believing him the softest target. But Harry refuses to split up. Speak to us together or not at all, he says, and Hermione nods her agreement. Refusing the Minister of Magic has become something of a matter of course for Harry by this Mm -hmm. point. But still, his fortitude in these moments never ceases to amaze Scrimgeour, deciding against trading barbs this early, concedes this point. Very well then. Together, he said, shrugging, he cleared his throat. I am here, as I'm sure you know. Oh! Because of Albus Dumbledore's will. Now, it is not overstating things to say that this is one of the least accurate, as I'm sure you knows, in recorded yes. human history. While Scrimgeour has long been right to assume that Harry and Dumbledore were in active cahoots, while Harry, in fact, never denied it and actually actively confirmed that he was Dumbledore's man through and through. This is a complete shock to all of them. It had never occurred to them. A surprise, apparently, Scrimgeour says, reading their reactions correctly. You were not aware then that Dumbledore had left you anything. Interesting phrasing here, in light of how Harry's thoughts have lingered through the opening pages of Deathly Hallows about what Dumbledore actually did leave him. A seemingly impossible task and not nearly enough to go on. Uh, all of us, Ron asks. Me and Hermione, too. Ron, my guy, chill. Just hush. (laughs) Harry interrupts Scrimgeour's reply, (laughs) noting that Dumbledore died more than a month ago and asking what the hell took so long. And Hermione, showing no fear in the face of not only power, but clear attempted manipulation, says, isn't it obvious? They wanted to examine whatever he's left us. You had no right to do that. And her voice trembles as she speaks, but not from nerves. She's outraged by this miscarriage of justice, this intrusion into Dumbledore's life and memories. Scrimgeour, who despite his strained interactions with Harry, is probably largely unaccustomed to having teenagers so nakedly
0: challenge his authority, says, I had every right, citing the decree that grants the Ministry such power. I have never felt more empathy for Scrimgeour than this scene. He's got a very tough job and he's been mostly failing at it, but I feel bad for the guy who is literally about to die. (laughs) Very close to the end of his life right here. And he's just getting a three-man weave run on him by Harry, Ron, and Hermione.
1: It's very tough. And one of the things that makes it so tragic is as he will say at the end of this extremely fraught exchange, we should be on the same side. We're on the same side, but they just can never align. In response to him saying, I had every right, this decree grants the Ministry Such Power, Hermione naturally knows that the specific confiscation decree that he's citing relates to stopping wizards from passing on dark artifacts and requires powerful evidence to employ. Are you telling me that you thought Dumbledore was trying to pass us something cursed, she asks? And this is notable in a few ways. Of course, Dumbledore would not pass them something cursed, but the nature of Hermione's statement reveals how inconceivable it is to them, and maybe to anyone but Rita and her sources at the moment and Auntie Muriel, that Dumbledore could have in any way at any point been associated with the dark arts. What's more, it illuminates the shady nature of the ministry's behavior here, warping the law into a paper shield to hide their true intentions.
0: Harry asks, why now? Why are you letting us have this stuff now? And Hermione naturally knows. The 31 days the law allows the ministry to keep the items for is up. Even the Ministry can't push beyond that because these objects aren't actually proven to be dangerous. Scrimger doesn't acknowledge Hermione's right-in-one reply, but turns right to Ron, who he wanted to question first, alone, and Tom, whom his eyes flickered during this conversation. He knows from experience that Harry won't bend, and he sees immediately that Hermione is a force and knows her shit. Yes. And so let's give the redhead a try. He says, would you say you were close to door, Ronald? Me? Oh, uh, no, not really. It was always Harry who he halts at the stop talking now look that Hermione fires at him <laughs> from the book. But the damage was done. Scrimger looked as though he had heard exactly what he expected and wanted to hear. This puzzle piece clicked exactly into place. He continues. If you were not very close to Dumbledore, how do you account for the fact that he remembered you in his will? He made exceptionally few personal requests. Let's pause here for a moment to consider the heartache this line points to. Dumbledore's history is a mystery to Harry. That's why Doja's remembrances and Rita's book teas alike elicited such fierce emotions in him. There's no time for Harry or anyone to harp on this now, but Dumbledore making, quote, exceptionally few personal bequests speaks to the riddle of his own past and the heartache that defined it. Where are his loved ones? Where's his family? Where are his friends? Why isn't he leaving more things to more people in his life? This is one more subtle seed planted for the reveals to come. Scrimgeour
1: continues. The vast majority of Dumbledore's possessions, he said, were left to Hogwarts. His private library, his magical instruments, his other effects. A touching reminder here of how much the school and its students and its purpose in Wizarding Society meant to Dumbledore. But that's not interesting to Scrimgeour. Why do you think you were singled out? He asks Ron, who tries to recover from his initial slip by saying, I don't know. I, when I say we weren't close, I mean, I think he liked me. Hermione tries to stitch this wound closed. You're being modest, Ron. Dumbledore was very fond of you, and Harry thinks to himself that this was, quote, stretching the truth to the breaking point because Ron and Dumbledore had never been alone together, never really interacted at all. But as the ultimate use of the gift that Dumbledore is leaving to Ron will show, Dumbledore knew Ron well enough, and at least in one respect, better than Ron knew himself. Scrimgeour pulls out a large drawstring pouch, and from it, retrieves a scroll, and here begins the reading of the will. Quote, the last will and testament of Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. Yes, here we are, Scrimgeour says. To Ronald Bilious Weasley, I leave my deluminator in the hope that he will remember me when he uses it. Ooh. And from the bag, Scrimgeour pulls an object that Harry has seen before, the put-outer which sucks or restores all light from a place. And Ron looks stunned as he receives this item, which, as Scrimgeour tells him, is a valuable object. Quote, it may even be unique, certainly of Dumbledore's own design. Why would he have left you an item so rare? (laughs) She writes Scrimgeour so well. Her ability to establish in such a short span of time The full scope of someone's character, speech patterns, mannerisms, everything is just incredible. She's
0: a great dialogue writer.
1: Ron can only shake his head. A scrim drawer continues to lay out the puzzle that he's trying to solve. Pieces that he's handing to Harry and Ron and Hermione that will then become a different kind of riddle for them entirely. Both sides are trying to decipher Dumbledore's intentions here, but in different ways and for different reasons. The ministry wants to understand his plan so that it can stop or co-opt it. Harry and co. need to crack these codes so that they can act upon their meaning, moving forward with their quest, for which every piece of intel is a priceless gem. Quote, Dumbledore must have taught thousands of students, Scrumgeor persevered. Yet the only ones he remembered in his will are you three. Why is that? To what use did he think you would put his deluminator, Mr. Weasley? Man, when he says, yeah, the only ones he remembered in his will are you three. I get a chill every time. Ron says, put out lights, I suppose. <laughs> now, while it would be totally unreasonable to expect Harry or anyone else to think about this at this time, totally unreasonable, the question that Scrimgeour is asking here is actually, without him realizing it, a massive clue about the ultimate Snape Dumbledore reveal. Dumbledore didn't craft his will atop the tower after Draco disarmed him. This was set, and the two people that Dumbledore told Harry to bring into his trust and his quest are in it, signifying that Dumbledore was preparing to die. And then, there's the nature of the gift itself. The object won't just allow Ron to turn the lights on and off. It'll allow him to find his way back to Harry and Hermione after he abandons them, guiding Ron with Hermione's voice in a pulsating blue light. From later in the book, quote, He knew what he was doing when he gave me the deluminator, didn't he? Ron will say. He, well, he must have known I'd run out on you. No, Harry will say in reply. He must have known you'd always want to come back. He knew in part because he himself came back to his family and to the light. Remember me indeed.
0: Scrimmager moves on to Hermione. To Miss Hermione Jean Granger, I leave my copy of The Tales of Beetle the Bard in the hope that she will find it entertaining and instructive. Yes. He hands her a small, ancient-looking book with a stained and peeling binding and the title written in runes, which Harry never learned to read. Quote, As he looked, the tears splashed onto the embossed symbols. Scrimgeour asks why she thinks Dumbledore left her this book, and she says that the headmaster knew she liked to read. Yes. But why that particular book, he presses. He says, did you ever discuss codes or any means of passing secret messages with Dumbledore? Of all the bequests, this appears to be the most overt cipher, a literal collection of symbols from which only a select few can parse meaning. As we'll learn later in this chapter from Ron, this book is famous in the wizarding world, ingrained in wizarding homes and wizarding childhoods. But not everyone has the original text. Not everyone has the version written in runes. Dumbledore's brilliance is on display here. Hermione, suppressing a sob, says that no, she and Dumbledore never discussed codes. And that, quote... If the Ministry hasn't found any hidden cones in this book in 31 days, I doubt I will. But in passing along the rune version of Beetle, Dumbledore is able to embed the sign of the Deathly Hallows in its pages, which Hermione will find in time, recognizing it as the mark that Luna's father wore around his neck at the wedding. She'll eventually insist they go speak to him about the symbol, at which point they'll read the tale of the three brothers and learn about the lore of the Deathly Hallows. Dumbledore gave Hermione the key to unlocking this legend, and Harry's understanding of the Elder Wand— and the Resurrection Stone, and the Cloak of Invisibility, and his choice to hunt Horcruxes, even as he becomes the true master of the Hallows, the true master of death. He gave her a story dismissed by many as a children's tale, but containing therein the truth of life and death and loss and longing, sacrifice and acceptance. Sound familiar?
1: It does. It's Harry's term. Quote, To Harry James Potter, he read, and Harry's insides contracted with a sudden excitement. I leave the snitch he caught in his first Quidditch match at Hogwarts as a reminder of the rewards of perseverance and skill. Harry feels a, quote, definite sense of anticlimax as Scrimgeour removes the fluttering snitch and asks Harry why Dumbledore left it to him. And Harry says, truthfully, that he has no idea. Quote, for the reasons you just read out, I suppose. And reminding Harry of the rewards of perseverance and skill is, undeniably, a crucial thing. The quest will test his patience and his conviction time and again. Persistence in the face of a seemingly unconquerable task, a seemingly unbeatable foe, has been a theme of Harry and Dumbledore's shared experience. You think this a mere symbolic keepsake then, Scrimgeour asks. And while it will prove not to be merely that, this phrasing from Scrimgeour minimizes the power that a symbolic gesture can have. Reminders like this one from Dumbledore to Harry really matter. Scrimgeour asks next about Harry's snitch-shaped birthday cake. Slipping into pure paranoia mode here. Oh, it can't be a reference to the fact Harry's a great seeker. That'd be too obvious, Hermione says. There must be a secret message from Dumbledore hidden in the icing. Well, Hermione, in a matter of speaking, yes, we'll see later in this chapter that Dumbledore did in fact leave a hidden message in the metal icing of the actual snitch. But Scrimgeour here brushes this mockery aside, saying a snitch would be a very good hiding place for a small object. And Hermione, of course, knows why. Snitches have flesh memories, she says, and Harry and Ron have no idea what she's talking about. But hopefully, Scrimgeour informs them. No one touches a snitch, he says, before it's used in a match. Even the maker wears gloves. It's enchanted to identify the first person to touch it in case of a disputed capture. Quote, this snitch will remember your touch, Potter. It occurs to me that Dumbledore, who had prodigious magical skill whatever his other faults, <laughs> might have enchanted this snitch so that it will open only for you. Harry's heart was beating rather fast, the passage continues. He was sure that Scrimger was right. And Scrimger demands that Harry take the snitch. But when he does, nothing happens. That was dramatic, said Harry coolly. <laughs> Both Ron and Hermione laughed. <laughs> In a few minutes, we will discuss what Harry learns when he touches the snitch properly. But even the manner of him retrieving this is a small conundrum to solve. Dumbledore counted on Hermione to know about flesh memories and on Harry to remember how he caught this first snitch. Dumbledore picked this one knowing it was safest, knowing it would not reveal its secrets when placed in Harry's hand because he did not catch it with his hand.
0: But that's not all. Scrimgeour continues. Dumbledore left you a second bequest, Potter. Harry's excitement rekindles. What is it? Oh, you know, just the Sword of Gryffindor. The, yeah, the don't. Sword of Godric Gryffindor. While the sword will prove to be essential to their quest—a Horcrux slayer, a reminder of Harry standing as a true Gryffindor—another key, coded clue regarding Snape's involvement. It's not ultimately as essential as the Snitch and what's contained therein. Nothing does, given the weight of the role the Resurrection Stone plays. But damn, it's pretty cool.
1: Yes. Super, I mean, it's super extremely dumb. cool.
0: <laughs> super dope. The sword has come to Harry's aid before, helping him defeat the basilisk in the Chamber of Secrets. And so when Scrimgeour says the sword was not Dumbledore's to give, that it's a historical artifact, Hermione cuts in. It belongs to Harry. It chose him. Much more on the sword in today's restricted section. Scrimgeour asks the same question. Why did he give you this? Again, Harry does not know. It's imbibed with basilisk venom, meaning it can kill horcruxes. It's what Dumbledore used, in fact, to destroy the ring. Soon enough, Ron will use it to destroy the locket, and Neville will use it to destroy Nagini, R.I.P. That clarity is a (laughs) long way off. Here, Harry says, maybe he thought it would look nice on my wall. This is not a joke, Potter, Scrimgeour says. Was it because Dumbledore believed that only the sword of Godric Gryffindor could defeat the heir of Slytherin? Did he wish to give you that sword, Potter, because he believed, as do many, that you are the one destined to destroy he who must not be named? Interesting theory, said Harry. Has anyone ever tried sticking a sword in Voldemort? Well, Ron and Neville will stick it into pieces of his soul soon enough. Harry's patience has run out too. He asks if this is what the ministry has been doing rather than stopping deaths like Moody's and nearly like his. You go too far, Scrimgeour shouts. They both stand and Scrimgeour limps toward Harry, jabbing him in the chest with his wand, singeing a hole in his shirt. Ron jumps up and raises his wand. A wonderful moment for Ron, who's willing to fight the minister of magic to defend his friend. Harry talks him down. They can't give Scrimgeour an excuse to arrest them. Remembered you're not at school, have you, Scrimgeour says, channeling Snape's spirit in his myriad speeches about Harry's impertinence. Remembered that I am not Dumbledore who forgave your insolence and insubordination. You may wear that scar like a crown potter. This is great. But it is not up to a 17-year-old boy to tell me how to do my job. It's time you learned some respect. It's time you earned it. This is a heavyweight fight. This is why I love this scene and like why you really feel empathy for Scrimgeour here. Molly and Arthur run in, drawn by the shouting. Scrimgeour, quote, seemed to regret his loss of temper. As he looks at the hole in Harry's shirt, he tells Harry that he regrets his attitude and reminds Harry that they're working toward the same goal. But there's no hidden meaning to parse on either side. No mystery to solve. Scrimgeour wants Harry to obey, and Harry wants Scrimgeour out of the way. They're fighting a common enemy, but they can't find common ground. I don't like your methods, minister. Remember, Harry says, holding up the, I must not tell lies scar on his hand. I mean, that's a tough one. Like, why is Umbridge, why does she have a job? Yeah. Literally, why does she have a job? Well, I mean, that's, that's
1: Harry's point.
0: That's which is a great <laughs> fucking point. Yeah. Like fire her or like we yeah. literally can't have any conversations at all. Yeah. I mean, he did say that to him and yeah. Prince. So yeah. he's
1: on the record. Scrimgeour turns and leaves without another word. And Harry, Ron and Hermione show everyone the items that Dumbledore left them. They're all awed by the Deluminator and Beetle and full of lament over Harry not being able to possess the sword. But they're confounded by the snitch and what it might mean. After the excitement of the evening, Harry's actual birthday dinner is a hurried affair, and as it breaks up, he tells Hermione to meet him and Ron upstairs, after everyone else has gone to bed. As Ron is playing with the deluminator, Harry fills his mokeskin pouch, quote, not with gold, but with those items he most prized, apparently worthless, though some of them were. Hermione knocks and enters, casting Mufliado. Thought you didn't approve of that spell, Ron says. Times change, Hermione says, very tellingly. Now show us that deluminator. She notes something that readers have probably been thinking. There are other ways to turn out the lights. She mentions Peruvian instant darkness powder. And readers are probably thinking, you guys also have wands and can do magic. The light-centric purpose of the deluminator will actually become essential in a moment when they lack wands, when they are imprisoned in the Malfoy Manor dungeon. But beyond its surface-level function, which Ron defensively here says, hey, still, it's cool, the nature of Hermione's question Reveals the truth here. There must be something else going on with this object. Some layer that Dumbledore is counting on them pulling back and revealing. Some hidden meaning. Quote, surely he wouldn't have singled you out in his will just to help us turn out the lights, she says. There's more at play here, much more. They know that, but they don't know what. Harry asks if they think Dumbledore knew that the Ministry would confiscate and examine the will. Definitely, Hermione says. He couldn't tell us in the will why he was leaving us these things, but that still doesn't explain, she trails off, and Ron picks up. Why he couldn't have given us a hint when he was alive? Well, exactly, said Hermione. These new puzzle pieces are, on the one hand, thrilling clues. Three, and even though the sword is not physically with them, really four, new pieces of information that they can painstakingly assess to try to figure out how to move forward. But the fact that the information is coming to them in puzzle form is maddening and will become increasingly so to them over the course of their journey, fueling Harry's resentment about Dumbledore's withholding nature. Ron mentions the snitch and says, what the hell was that about? And Hermione says (laughs) that she was sure something would happen when Scrimgeour placed it in Harry's hand. Yeah, well," said Harry. His pulse quickening as he raised the Snitch in his fingers. "I wasn't going to try too hard in front of Scrimgeour, was I?" And they're like, "What are you talking about?" The Snitch I caught in my first ever Quidditch match," said Harry. "Don't you remember?" Harry. Not everyone is just watching your Quidditch highlights on loop, like <laughs> studying your game tape, like all twenty years. Are you?
0: I'm sure you could never forget. <laughs> The method by which I caught my first snitch. I'm sure it's imprinted on your mind as it is on mine. (laughs) The don't you remember is like priceless to me. But then comprehension dawns
1: for Ron with this prodding from Harry. And Ron gasps. That was the one you nearly swallowed. Harry, heart beating fast, lifts the snitch and presses it to his mouth. Quote,
0: it did not open. I remember being sure that it would open here. Yeah.
1: This chapter, every beat of it, You're just on the edge of your seat waiting for the next reveal. And the push and pull, the disappointment that you feel along with Harry, and then the thrill of the prospect of more, it's just, it's an unbelievable seesaw. Yeah, Frustration and bitter disappointment welled up inside. But then Hermione shouts out. There's writing on the orb. Quote, engraved upon the smooth golden surface where seconds before there had been nothing were five words written in the thin slanting handwriting. That Harry recognizes Dumbledore's. I open at the close. <sighs> Man, chills. Like fire revealing the black speech upon the one ring, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. Harry's touch and the snitch's flesh memory reveal a message of monumental importance. The words vanish in an instant, and he asks what that message. Could possibly mean turning the words over, repeating them anew at the close. Another riddle, another mystery. This among the greatest of all. The snitch is more than just a conveniently guarded hiding place. It's a symbol of the first place that Harry found his comfort and his courage in the air, on the quidditch pitch, on a broomstick, the first place that he knew who he was and what he was meant to be. It's where he began to grasp his identity to find his place in the world. A purpose that as he rises from viewing Snape's memories in the pensive, he will truly, fully understand. The close, we and Harry will realize in time, is the moment of Harry's self-sacrifice. I am about to die, a whisper to the golden shell as he moves toward the forest in Voldemort, and the snitch will open to reveal the resurrection stone, which Harry will use not to bring others back from their peace, but to help him find his
0: own. Ron asks about the sword, and here Harry's frustration begins to simmer. Why, why couldn't Dumbledore have explained its significance to him while he was alive? It was there, Harry says, right there in his office during their lessons. From the book, was there something he had missed in the long talks with Dumbledore last year? Oddie to know what it all meant? Had Dumbledore expected him to understand? Dumbledore will learn, wanted Harry to understand everything, but at the right moment, when he'd be ready to master the Hallows safely, when he'd be ready to accept what being the final Horcrux would mean. That's many misadventures and puzzle pieces away. In the meantime, what about this here book, Hermione says? I've never even heard of them. Ron is stunned, and so are we. Ron knows something that (laughs) Hermione and Harry don't? (laughs) Oh, come on. All the kids' stories are supposed to be beetles, aren't they? It transpires that these are stories told to wizarding children. Ron, Hermione says, you know full well Harry and I were brought up by muggles? Further exploration will have to wait. There's a creek downstairs. It's time for bed and the wedding awaits. Chapter 8. The wedding. Love a wedding.
1: It's wedding day. Harry, Ron, and the twins have been put to work as ushers, and Harry, with the aid of polyjuice potion and some pilfered hairs from a muggle boy in the local village who has no idea that he's being impersonated right now, is disguised as Barney. Hey, Barn! Cousin Barn! (laughs) A non-existent Weasley cousin. There are so many Weasleys, the thinking goes, that no one will (laughs) know he's a fake. The guests, in their best magical finery, begin arriving outside the boundary of the borough's new security charms. There's Fleur's villa cousins, and the twins leap to the task of helping them to their seats like parched men
0: diving at a glass of water. They will get wet soon enough.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They'll need help understanding our English customs. I'll look after them, George says. Not so fast, your holiness, Fred adds, dashing past George and leading the giggling girls inside. There's Tonks and a miserable-looking Lupin, with the now-blonde Tonks explaining to Harry that the Ministry is being, quote, very anti-Werewolf at the moment. Thus, their hurried exit last night. And Harry notices how quickly Lupin's plastered-on smile fades. How unhappy he really looks. Quote, he did not understand it, but there was no time to dwell on the matter. And then there's Hagrid, who immediately turns five chairs into a pile of broken twigs. (laughs) (sighs) And talking to Ron, there's, quote, a most eccentric-looking wizard with slightly crossed eyes, candy floss hair, yellow robes, and (laughs) an odd symbol, rather like a triangular eye, glistened from a golden chain around his neck. Grindelwald's Mark Crumb will tell us later in this chapter. The sign of the Deathly Hallows, Xenophilius will tell us when Harry, Ron, and Hermione visit his home later in the book to unearth the mystery of this very symbol drawn by hand for Hermione in the copy of Beetle that Dumbledore gave her. He introduces himself to Barney as Xenophilius Lovegood and then says to Ron, but I think you know my Luna. love the way he says that, yeah. my Luna. We see immediately that Xenophilius, who can't stop gushing about the, quote, glorious infestation of garden gnomes. <laughs> it's wonderful. Passed down his quirk to our dear Luna. And speaking of, this is an incredible moment. She rushes off and says, hello, Harry. And Harry, who, of course, is disguised using polyjuice potion, is like, what? I know, it's great. My name's Barney, said Harry, flummoxed. Oh, have you changed that too? She asked (laughs) brightly. (laughs) How did you know? Oh, just your expression, she said. Just an iconic show. There's from never Luna enough here. Luna. Luna's the she's best. incredible. Yeah. She is just unbelievable. Love her. We get a nice Harry Luna shipping moment when he thinks that after you got past the brightness of her outfit, quote, the general effect was quite pleasant. And another one from her when she tells Harry, You look smart, <laughs> complimenting his dress robes before explaining that her father believes you should always wear sun colors to a wedding. For luck, you know.
0: Then coming in hot over the top rope, (laughs) it is the long-awaited arrival of Ron's very first snogging partner, Auntie muriel
1: Is that Muriel's (laughs) music?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Our first exposure to her comes as she's dispensing dunk after dunk. And your hair's much too long, Ronald. For a moment, I thought you were Ginevra. <laughs> Merlin's beard. What is an love good wearing? He looks like an omelette. <laughs> when Ron introduces her to Harry as our cousin Barry, she says, another Weasley? You plead like loams. Without pausing, she asks, isn't Harry Potter here? I was hoping to meet him. I thought he was a friend of yours, Ronald, or have you merely been boasting? <laughs> Muriel is just getting started on a run that (gasps) will see her fire shots in all directions. Incredible. Not exempting the bride. She's a good looking girl, but still French. (laughs) God, an entire nation oh, God. and the nation of birth of the bride on her wedding day. <laughs> we learn that Muriel stopped coming around family gatherings after Fred and George set off a dung bomb under her chair at dinner. But Ron's story time is interrupted by a rapid blink fest at home in a rainstorm. Hermione has arrived. She looks fucking great. <laughs> wow, Ron says as he blinks like a smitten buffoon. You look great. Hermione throws his own recent utterance back at him. Always the tone of surprise. So iconic line from the Hermione Nini. She smiles appreciatively at Ron and then shares that Auntie Muriel does not share his assessment. They just met, at which point Muriel dubbed her, quote, the Muggleborn with, quote, Bad posture and skinny ankles. Are fat ankles good? Like, this is also what I think every, every time I read what's this. Wrong with, Why are skinny <laughs> ankles bad? Like, I what? don't understand. That's a very <laughs> weird take from Auntie Muriel. <laughs> <laughs> very weird look for our girl Muriel, who also told George <laughs> that his ears look lopsided. Yeah, <laughs> they do. God. Give Muriel a spinoff immediately. <laughs> yeah, immediately. Immediately.
1: <laughs> And they start reminiscing about another family member, dear Uncle Billius, who you will recall from Prisoner of Azkaban, saw Grim and died 24 hours later. Fred says, he used to down an entire bottle of fire whiskey, (laughs) then run onto the dance floor, hoist up his robes, (laughs) and start pulling bunches of flowers out of his... Yes, he sounds a real charmer, said Hermione, while Harry roared with laughter. Never married for some reason, said Ron. You amaze me, said Hermione. There is something so heartening, so fortifying about this moment. Our trio and the twins just sitting around laughing, enjoying a moment where they're not thinking about the war or the trials to come. When Harry, at the end of Half-Blood Prince, thought about the wedding and that one last golden day of peace, this is the kind of thing that he imagined. They're all laughing so much, in fact that they don't notice a latecomer arriving until he hands Ron his invitation, which is an unbelievable flex, and says to Hermione, You look wonderful. You look wonderful. Victor! She shrieks. That's right, folks. Vic, the dick is back. He's back. Hermione is so happy to see Crumb that she drops her small beaded bag in shock and it thump (laughs) (laughs) Quote, made a loud thump quite disproportionate to its size. A nice Easter egg here amid everything else going on about the bag's expanded depths. We will see next chapter that all of their possessions are packed inside because Hermione is a fucking legend who is always ready to move. She's blushing when she picks up the bag and says, I didn't know you were. Goodness, it's lovely to see you. How are you? Ron, who's working on the puzzle of how to express his feelings for Hermione like it's a fucking quadratic equation here. Yes, it's very <laughs> Can't figure it out, this guy. 12 fail-safe ways to solve quadratic equations. Yeah. is not thrilled to see his former idol and action figure here, clearly hoping to rekindle the embers of his former flame. With Hermione Ninny. How come you're here, Ron says. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Wanwan, first of all, Floor invited him. You may recall that they competed in a life-altering tournament together. That bond is probably going to last. Also, uh, he wants to get with Ninny. (laughs) Come on. As this scene is playing out, the Vila are all in a tizzy over Chrome's arrival. A nice reminder that our dude is a legit celebrity. He is a a famous person. And he's a good-looking kid. He is, though Ron has a comment on his appearance as they all take their seats. Hermione is still blushing, still pink, and Ron, red, turns to Harry
0: and mutters, did you see he's grown a stupid little beard? <laughs> Time to update your action figure, Ronnie. I will never get over the fact that he bought a crumb action figure. <laughs> anyway, the ceremony itself presided over by the same wizard who presided over Dumbledore's funeral is delightful, a ray of light in a darkening world. Fleur glows, casting her light upon them all when she reaches her soon-to-be husband from the book. Bill did not look as though he had ever met Fenrir right Grayback. The symbolism here is deep and important. A chapter after Harry discovered the message, I open at the close on the snitch left to him by Dumbledore, here's an example of two seemingly binary outcomes, death and life, blending into each other. Yes. The meaning of one is derived from the other. Life is precious and important and worth defending precisely because we die. Even Auntie Muriel's barbs about Ginny's low-cut neckline can't dampen the scene. Though the neckline clearly dampens Harry's pants. From the book, Ginny glanced around, grinning, winked at Harry, then quickly faced the front again. Harry's mind wandered a long way from the marquee. back to the afternoons, spent alone with Ginny in lonely parts of the school grounds. In this moment, cast against the union of Bill and Fleur's lives, Harry's reminiscing doesn't fill him with joy. It fills him with the same sense of remove he experienced earlier when looking around Privet Drive from the book. They had always seemed too good to be true, he thinks of those moments, as though he had been stealing shining hours from a normal person's life, a person without a lightning-shaped scar on his forehead. Tears abound as Fleur and Bill say the words. Mrs. Weasley, who initially opposed the Union, remember, weeps openly, so grateful for her son's life and his happiness. Hagrid's sobbing. Hermione's eyes are full of tears. I declare you bonded for life, the tufty haired wizard says as silver stars shower down on them and golden balloons burst to release birds and bells. And we get to appreciate for a moment that love can still exist in this world. It's beautiful.
1: The surroundings transform for the reception a molten gold dance floor spreading, the band that was previously getting high on the peace pipe heading up to the stage to perform. Bill and Floor take to the dance floor to the adulation of their guests. Ron, moments ago, having said that they'll have time to congratulate them later, never anticipating that that might not be true, our friends join the love goods table. And when Luna gets up to dance alone to a song she likes, she's great, isn't she, said Ron approvingly. Always good value. He's talking about Luna like she's a baseball (laughs) staff. A lot
0: of value above replacement with Luna.
1: Yeah, but are you looking at baseball reference or (laughs) (laughs) fangraphs? Vic the dick takes her seat at the table with Barney, Ron, and Hermione. Vic, glowering, asks who that man in yellow is. And Ron says, he's the father of a friend of ours. <laughs> then asks Hermione to dance, clearly not wanting her to be near Crumb for too long. Hermione, who was described as looking, quote, pleasurably flustered. It's nothing like being fawned over. Man, loved to be pleasurably flustered. Yeah. <laughs> when Crumb arrived at the table, looks, quote, taken back, but pleased too, at Ron's request. That leaves the two seekers to their conversation, though, of course, Crum doesn't realize that he's speaking to Harry. Ah, they are together now, Crum asks. Eh, sort of, Harry says, summing up the puzzle of Ron and Hermione's current romantic state fairly well. They're in the it's complicated Facebook setting of the tech devoid wizarding world. <laughs> yeah, Crum, who ostensibly came here from Bulgaria to see her. And yes, of course, to attend his dear friend's wedding, but to, had to see think, her. had to yeah. think Hermione would be there, right? Takes the blow surprisingly well. But we can tell just from the nature of his observation that he was hoping for something else. Yeah. He moves on though, because something other than Hermione's flowing lilac yes. dress has his attention. Yeah. He asks Barney if he knows Love Good well. And when Harry says, I met him today, why, Crumb says, If he was not a guest of Fleur's, I would duel him here and now for wearing that filthy sign upon his chest. As stated above, we will soon learn that this is the sign of the Deathly Hallows and yeah. that Xenophilius is a quester, a true believer in the three objects presented in the tale of the three brothers, the Wand, the Resurrection Stone, the Cloak of Invisibility. Harry, who thought the object looked like a, quote, strange triangular eye, asks, what's wrong with the symbol? And Crum says, it's Grindelwald's sign. Harry is surprised by this. Grindelwald? The dark wizard Dumbledore defeated, he says? Exactly, Crumb says, adding that, Grindelwald killed many people, including his grandfather. Crumb says, of course, he was never powerful in this country. They said he feared Dumbledore, and rightly, seeing as how he was finished. But this, he pointed a finger at Zenophilius, this is his symbol. I recognized it at once. Grindelwald carved it on a wall at Durmstrang when he was a pupil there. Readers don't yet know what a massive role this symbol and the legend and truth behind it will play in the story, nor... this is the sign of the titular Deathly Hallows that we've been puzzling over since the book's title was released. Mm -hmm. We also don't yet know what Grindelwald reveals await in relation to Dumbledore. But even absent that knowledge, it is clear that there's a puzzle here to solve. It seems impossible that Luna's father, who was gushing about the enormously beneficial qualities of gnome saliva mere pages ago, would be walking around with a dark wizard symbol hanging from his neck. This mark, we can already deduce, means different things to different people. Mm -hmm. Though as we'll realize in time, Grindelwald himself adopted the sign because of the Hallows lore. He had the Elder Wand, and he sought the other Hallows too, aiming to possess them all and use them to gain power. We will discuss this more in time, both during the course of this book and during our Fantastic Beasts episodes. But it's worth quickly noting here how strange it is, regardless of the other original significance of the Hallows... And the captivating pull over Xenophilius and so many of us regarding what that really symbolizes, that more people would not at least be familiar with its association with Grindelwald, at least be aware of that, given the scope and horror of his reign. It's not the same, but it recalls in a fashion Westeros' failure to believe that the White Walkers were back. And of course, how Ron, a boy born and raised in the Wizarding World, did not recognize the dark mark in the sky reminds us that real horrors can recede with astonishing speed.
0: Harry vouches for Xenophilius. In truth, Harry barely knows him. But just by what he's seen in the short, goofy conversations that they've had, and going by the fact that Luna is a delight, who seems completely untouched by dark magic, Harry finds it extremely doubtful that Xeno love could be an inherent of Grindelwald. He tells Vic that Dick so, but to no avail. Dick, focused on Zeno, draws his wand, and when he does so, Harry cries out, Gregorovitch! Puzzle pieces are snapping into place in Harry's mind, and he realizes why the name from his Voldemort vision on the mountain road was familiar. Harry has heard it before. After shouting. He major your wand, that's why I thought Quidditch. Harry keeps his cover as Cousin Barry by telling Vic that he knows that because he read it in a fan magazine, leading to Vic's iconic statement, I had not realized I ever discussed my wand with fans. <laughs> <laughs> Crumb reveals that Grigorovich retired several years ago, then boasts about his product. Harry thinks hard. The piece is clicking into place, and he realizes that Voldemort, is looking for a celebrated wand maker. It's easy. One of the few easy things among the codes and shrouded messages all around him for Harry to figure out why. The way in which Harry's wand beat Voldemort in the skies during the Seven Potters' Escape, despite Voldemort borrowing Lucius's wand to account for what transpired during the duel with Voldy in the Little Hangleton graveyard, Voldemort must be searching, Harry realizes, for a solution to the rare phenomena affecting their wands. Voldemort wants something that the wandmaker Gorgorovic has or knows about, a matter that Harry will devote great time to puzzling over from here on out, and that his ensuing travels into Voldemort's mind will reveal with shocking clarity the quest for the Elder Wand, which Gorgorovic owned before Grindelwald stole it. Harry's thoughts halt when Crumb says, This girl is very nice looking. <laughs> He's pointing at Ginny. Harry replies, She's seeing someone. Jealous type. Big bloke, you wouldn't want to cross him.
1: Harry, either
0: date Ginny or let her live. I mean, I get it. It's, it's the, a sweet instinct, but. He's 17, it's fine. This it's, is what 17 year olds do. <laughs> this is exactly how they act. Crumb uh, grunts and gives us his 500th <laughs> iconic line of this brief appearance this in our lives. It's an Vought. amazing one. Is the point of being an international quidditch player if all the good-looking girls good are taken? There's literally Vila over there that are like, <laughs> "Oh my god, baby, crowd!" Yeah, but they're like smitten with Fred now. <laughs> yeah, because Vic was late going for Hermione, then he's looking at Ginny, and it's like, "Make your move, guy." <laughs> the party
1: rolls on into the evening. Harry trying not to resent his promise to stay away from Ginny. Phoenix cake toppers flying into the sky and champagne bottles floating through the crowd. This sounds like a good party. Yeah. Fred and George have retired to some private corners with Flora's cousins. <laughs> I love seeing Fred and George's game in action. It's, it's pretty honestly great. great. Also, Legends. like together? I mean, maybe not always, but certainly at some point. Man, what a, what a, what
0: a kink with those two. <laughs>
1: Charlie and Hagrid and a wizard in a pork pie hat or singing karaoke. Love it. Oda the Hero, which you'll remember from Hagrid and Slughorn's Felix-Aided recording session in Half-Blood Prince. Harry fleeing from some drunk uncle of Ron's who thinks the dear Barney might be his own son. (laughs) Come here, my son. (laughs) Spots Order of the Phoenix member. Dog breath doge. That's a tough nickname for, for my guy. <laughs> it was part of the party that moved Harry from Privet Drive to Grimoire Place in Order of the Phoenix, and who, of course, penned the obituary that Harry read in the Daily Prophet earlier in this book. Harry asks if he can sit down and reveals his true identity. Quote, Doge gasped. My dear boy, Arthur told me you were here disguised. I am so glad, so honored. And we see right away how the loss of his friend Dumbledore yes. has affected him. Quote, I thought of writing to you, he whispered, after Dumbledore, the shock. And for you, I am sure. Doge's tiny eyes filled with sudden tears. Harry brings up the obituary and says that he hadn't realized until reading it that Doge had known Dumbledore so well. As well as anyone, said Doge, dabbing his eyes with a napkin. Certainly, I knew him longest, if you don't count Aberforth. And somehow, people never do seem to count Aberforth. The goats do. No shots at Aberforth, whom I love. Well, As we discussed in our first Hallows pod, Doge didn't know Dumbledore nearly as well as he thought. But that clarity doesn't take away from the emotion. If anything, it exacerbates it by reminding us how much of life is a mystery to us, even when we don't realize it.
0: Harry asks if Doge has seen Rita Skeeter's recent interview. Oh, yes, Harry, I saw it. That woman of vulture might be a more accurate term. Positively pestered me. To talk to her, I am ashamed to say that I became rather rude, called her an interfering trout, which resulted, as you may have seen, in aspersions cast upon my sanity. (laughs) It's blasphemous trash in Doge's mind. When Harry asks specifically about Rita's supremely unsubtle suggestions that Dumbledore might have been involved in the dark arts when he was younger, Doge again, we must note wrongly, says, Don't believe a word of it! Better word, Harry! Let nothing tarnish your memories of Albus Dumbledore. But Harry is not reassured by this. He is instead frustrated from the book. Did Doge really think it was that easy that Harry could simply choose not to believe? Didn't Doge understand Harry's need to be sure to know everything? Sometimes death can bring peace and clarity, but Dumbledore's death has brought Harry nothing but pain and questions, more puzzles that he doesn't have the pieces to solve, more riddles that not only gnaw away at Harry's soul, but challenge something fundamental about what he believes to be true. Auntie Muriel homes in on the sound of Rita Skeeter's name like a shit talk seeking missile. Rita Skeeter? Oh, I love her. I always read her. (laughs) What follows is a scene that shows that truth is often, if not always, a matter of perspective. The act of trying to understand other people is naturally an exercise in fitting together often contradictory puzzle pieces to find meaning in a larger whole. What information do you have and when? How does the context of your particular experience frame your understanding? Muriel shouts at an actual Weasley cousin nearby, Give me your chair! I'm 107! <laughs> and then tells them not to look so damn grim. Before he became so respected and respectable and all that tosh, were some mighty funny rumors about elbows. Now consider why we're hearing this from Auntie Muriel. Of all people, What function is she really serving? She's a gives-no-fucks truth warrior who will say anything she thinks or feels, but there's more. She's just told us her age for a reason. She's been around for most of Dumbledore's life. She's a member of a proud wizarding family who would have had access to the rumors of the day. She's not just looking for dirt like Rita. She's lived through these times. When Doge, quote, radish-colored, laments her, quote, ill-informed sniping, she replies in kind by chiding his obituary, saying it was too much of a hagiography. I'm sorry you think so, said Doge more coldly still. I assure you I was writing from the heart. And here the box
1: up ends and a positive flood of new information, new pieces, each more jagged than the last, pours out over Harry. Oh, we all know you worship Dumbledore, Muriel replies. I dare say you'll still think he was a same, even if it does turn out that he did away with his squib sister. Muriel, Doge cries, quote, a chill that had nothing to do with the ice champagne was stealing through Harry's chest. What do you mean? He asked Muriel. Who said his sister was a squib? I thought she was ill. Now, Ariana, of course, was not a squib. As we'll learn over the course of Deathly Hallows, she was a witch who repressed her powers after being attacked by muggle boys who saw her do magic and tried to force more out of her. And from that point forward, her magic turned inward and became uncontrollable. Following the Credence-centric reveals in the first Fantastic Beasts film, many have come to believe that Ariana, like Credence, was not obscurial. Notably, it's not clear here whether Doge is objecting to the substance of the statement or to the fact that Muriel is speaking it aloud. Yes. Clearly, quote, delighted at the effects she had produced in Harry, a.k.a. Barry, a.k.a. Barney, who's <laughs> stunned by what he's hearing. She says... Anyway, how could you expect to know anything about it? It all happened years and years before you were even thought of, my dear. And the truth is that those of us who were alive then never knew what really happened. Harry is shaken. He never told me his sister was a squib, he says aloud, naturally earning a. And why on earth would he tell you? (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Barry (laughs) from Muriel. Barry thinks he's just some random curly haired (laughs) (laughs) Weasley. Fucking Barry. (laughs) All Harry's heard since Dumbledore's death is how special he was to the headmaster. But the more he learns about Dumbledore's past, the more he's beginning to wonder how true that was. How much could he have meant to someone that he seems not to have known nearly as well as he thought? Now, Harry doesn't trust Rita Skeeter. He doesn't know or trust Auntie Muriel either. But that's almost beside the point. Just hearing these things starts to take a toll. Doubt is a noxious weed, and right
0: now it's starting to choke him. Doge attempts to argue that, well, the reason that Dumbledore never spoke of his sister you know, was because he was too devastated over her death. This is the truth, or at least some version of it, devastated over her death, and as we'll learn, his role in it. But Muriel is a tank, and she rolls over this. Why did half of us never even know she existed until they carried the coffin out of the house and held a funeral for her? Where was saintly Elvis while Ariana was locked in the cellar off being brilliant at Hogwarts? And never mind what was going on in his own house. What do you mean locked in the cellar, asked Harry? What is this? It's sickeningly clear from Doge's face, he, quote, looked wretched, that there's at least some grain of truth to this. Ariana was kept at home, away from others, but as we'll learn in time, not because the family was ashamed of her, but because she was a danger to herself and others, her magic, a force that she could not control. Dumbledore's mother, Muriel, says, was an awful, domineering woman who was aghast at producing a squib. Doge finally yelps, Ariana was not a squib! Why then did she not attend Hogwarts, Muriel points out? Muriel fires off insinuation after insinuation. Kendra didn't want Ariana sent to a Muggle school. She couldn't have been sick because she was never taken to St. Mungo's and no healer was ever sent for. We'll learn later, of course, that keeping St. Mungo's away from Ariana was such a priority for the family that Percival, Albus's father, went to Azkaban and died there rather than admit that the Muggle boys he attacked had hurt his daughter. If St. Mungo's took her, the family wouldn't have gotten her back. Yet here, Harry sits thinking of himself, imprisoned at home by the Dursleys, a source of shame deprived for 10 years of the chance to be himself. From the book, had Dumbledore's sister suffered the same fate in reverse, he wonders, imprisoned for her lack of magic? His next thought hits closer to the mark. Quote,
1: had Dumbledore truly left her to her fate while he went off to Hogwarts to prove himself brilliant and talented. Later in this book, in King's Cross, Dumbledore will confess as much to Harry, a slightly different timeline, but saying of the time in which he had to return back home to care for his siblings after his parents' deaths, I resented it, Harry. I was gifted. I was brilliant. I wanted to escape. I wanted to shine. I wanted glory. That, in part, is what captivated Dumbledore so when Grindelwald arrived. Here was someone who appealed to his mind, another brilliant boy chasing greatness. And in that chase, Dumbledore briefly lost himself and forever lost his sister. It was the defining regret of his life, the horror that tormented him when he drank the potion in the cave. And speaking of deaths in the Dumbledore family, Muriel's vile accusations continue here, unencumbered. Now, if Kendra hadn't died first, Muriel resumed, I'd have said it was she who finished off Ariana. How can you, Muriel, groaned Doge, a mother, kill her own daughter? Think what you are saying. But Muriel goes further. Yeah. Theorizing in response to Doge's sarcastic, oh, no doubt Ariana murdered her, why not, lament that unbeknownst to him actually contains a version of the truth, that Ariana may very well have killed Kendra in a desperate bid to escape her imprisonment, Muriel says. We will get the gutting truth in time. Ariana did kill her own mother, though it was not murder. It was, as Aberforth will tell Harry, Ron, and Hermione a terrible, tragic accident, a bout of rage that spawned a lethal burst of uncontrollable magic.
0: Doge is repulsed by Muriel's display, but she plows right ahead. Shake your head all you like, Elphias. You were at Ariana's funeral, were you not? Yes, I was, said Doge through trembling lips. "And a more desperately sad occasion, I cannot remember. Albus was heartbroken. His heart wasn't the only thing. Didn't Aberforth break Albus's nose halfway through the surface? How do you? Croaked Doge. Muriel, it turns out, heard the tale from Bethilda, a history of magic bagshot. The way Bethilda told it, Aberforth shouted that it was all Albus's fault that Ariana was dead and then punched him in the face. According to Bathilda, Albus did not even defend himself, and that's odd enough in itself. Albus could have destroyed Aberforth in a duel with both hands tied behind his back. There are so many clues, so many puzzle pieces here. First... There's Bathilda's impending role in the story. Rita's source, Grindelwald's family member, Nagina's human host. There's the riddle of why the brothers would have fought like this at all, let alone on such an occasion. And there's the massive clue of Dumbledore's appearing to think he deserved this treat. Of the blame, we'll learn he never let go. Here, Harry is reeling. Could any of this be true? If even some part of it is, and Doge can only, quote, sit there and bleat feebly that Ariana had been ill, then did he know Dumbledore at all? How can he trust him, dedicate his life to the mission set out by him when everything he thinks he knows could be wrong? And there's more. Bathilda is probably Rita Skeeter's source, Muriel hypothesizes,
1: and she will be proven correct. Harry asks if they mean the author of A History of Magic, and Doge confirms, yes, she was an old friend of Albus's, he says. Muriel adds that she's lost her mind, but that wouldn't stop Rita from extracting information, and there could also be things like letters and photos. And a photo of Grindelwald in her home will in fact play a key role in Harry's ensuing journey of discovery. As Doge and Muriel continue to argue, Muriel lets slip a detail that cuts through Harry like the sword that Scrimgeour refused to give him. Quote, she knew the Dumbledores for years. Well worth the trip to Gadrick's Hollow, I'd have thought. Yes, that's right. Bethilda Bagshot lives in the same town, the same village where Harry's parents used to live, the same place where they were murdered. And Harry survived Voldemort's curse. The same place that Harry has been yearning to visit. And the same place, apparently, where the Dumbledores lived after they relocated mm-hmm. following Percival's imprisonment. And the headmaster, who became like a father to Harry, never once told him this. Never once told him that they shared this place, this history, this source of loss. Quote, Harry felt drained Empty. Never once in six years had Dumbledore told Harry that they had both lived and lost loved ones in Godric's Hollow. Why? Were Lillian James buried close to Dumbledore's mother and sister? Yes, as we will see soon. Had Dumbledore visited their graves, perhaps walked past Lillian James's to do so? And he had never once told Harry, never bothered to say. Stunned, Harry turns this information over and over again in his mind, trying to make sense of it. It's not just an omission. Yeah. It's an omission of something so fundamental, so ingrained in both of them, so core to their past and to Harry's future, to who they've been and who Harry could still be, that, quote, he felt it had been tantamount to a lie.
0: As Harry sits lost in thought, Hermione, tired from dancing, comes over telling him that Ron's gone for drinks and Crum and Xenophilius appear to have been arguing. Noticing Harry's mood, she asks if he's okay. From the book, Harry did not know where to begin, but it did not matter. At that moment, something large and silver came falling through the canopy over the dance floor. Graceful and gleaming, the lynx landed lightly in the middle of the astonished dancers, heads turned, as those nearest it froze absurdly in mid dance, then the Patronus's mouth opened wide, and it spoke in the loud, deep, slow voice of Kingsley Shacklebolt. The ministry has fallen. Scrimgeour is dead. They are coming.
1: <sighs> Chills. This is the beginning of this book. This is chapter eight. We've already had the seven potters battle,
0: yeah. and now this. You literally I mean, cannot not read the next chapter. <laughs> it's pretty wild.
1: Tiny bit of Phoenix song for Scrimgeour. He did try.
0: I feel bad for the guy. Yeah, I he honestly, did try. He did try. Let's he Give him a, a squawk. Well, it is heartbreaking to discover later yes. that he literally died to protect, protect her. That's a beautiful moment. A nice I mean, moment of redemption.
1: That, more than anything, really shows you that his priorities were pure, even if his methods weren't Yeah, his method,
0: he was lost in a maze not entirely of his own making. You know, this bureaucracy was just too much for him to get his arms around. But when the chips were down, he knew True North in a way that Fudge did not. Yes, very well said. Mal, according to reliable historical sources, the sword may present itself to any worthy podcaster. So don't feel special, in other words. But feel free to prove yourself worthy. Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the Sword of Gryffindor.
1: When Harry Potter jams the sorting hat on his head and pleads for help during the basilisk battle in the Chamber of Secrets, he isn't quite sure what he's asking for. He just knows that he's fighting a giant, ancient snake, and needs something, anything to defend himself. Luckily, the hat obliges, and Harry receives quite the aid. Quote, a gleaming silver sword had appeared inside the hat, its handle glittering with rubies the size of eggs. One chapter later, after using the sword to slay Slytherin's monster, Harry makes another discovery. With Dumbledore's prodding, he sees the name engraved below the hilt, Godric Gryffindor, one of Hogwarts's four founders. Jason's pick for toughest hang among the founders, and the namesake
0: of Harry's own house. You just gotta hear about all the stuff all the time. He's so brave, and it's like, you know. Anybody who who walks around with their sword on is like a tough hang. Zero doubt that Helga is the best hang. Helga is by far the best hang. Helga, come
1: watch Red Zone with me on Sunday. Please, Helga. Years later, of course, another true Gryffindor will pull the sword out of the hat and use it to kill another of Tom Riddle's snake friends. And there's a reason for this continuing connection between the sword and the hat. They're the only two known relics of Gryffindor a thousand years after his life. Hmm. So let's rewind for a moment. Back those thousand years to the sword's creation and the contentious claims of ownership that it inspired. According to Rowling's recounting of the tale on Pottermore, Godric Gryffindor requested a gleaming sword from Ragnuk I. Love the I. One of my Great favorite guy. Ragnucs. The best Ragnick, <laughs> <laughs> The Goblin King at the time and finest craftsman they had. And Ragnok went to work in the smithery. But Ragnuc toiled long and hard. And he grew to love this particular sword so much that after he completed it, he, quote, pretended that Gryffindor had stolen it from him and sent minions to steal it back. Gryffindor defended himself with his wand, but did not kill his attackers. Instead, he sent them back to their king bewitched to deliver the threat that if he ever tried to steal from Gryffindor again, Gryffindor would unsheath the sword
0: against them all. Yikes. I told you. It's like <laughs> this guy. It's like, calm down, Godric. Please. Helga's just a chill person. Very extra look from Godric right here. <laughs>
1: Ragnik respected the threat, but he never told his followers that the sword should have been Gryffindor's, thus giving birth to the legend that Gryffindor had stolen the weapon. Combine that myth with the goblins' cultural belief that items they make belong to goblins by right. Stannis' voice. Yeah. It is mine. It is mine by rights. <laughs> it should therefore return to goblins after a wizard buyer's death, and the two sides have a recipe for long-term strife. In fact... There's some evidence, according to one of the Wombat quizzes on Rowling's old site, that disagreement over the sword's ownership catalyzed one of the goblin rebellions some six or 700 years after the sword's creation. Because the sword is made of goblin silver, it is pure and enchanted, especially by goblin magic. We know from other items that goblin silver is immensely valuable and tactically desirable. In Order of the Phoenix, for instance, Hagrid explains that he and Madame Maxime presented the giants with a gift of a goblin-made battle helmet. That was, quote, indestructible. And as we'll learn later in Hallows, Goblin Silver imbibes only that which strengthens it, which answers the question of how the sword can be used as a Horcrux killer, having become impregnated with basilisk venom mm. back in book two. I'll impregnate the
0: bitch. I'll impregnate the man.
1: <laughs> Can't wait to be back with Braun in season eight. As Rowling writes on Pottermore, her inspiration for creating the sword owes something to the legend of Excalibur, the famous sword in the stone that Arthur pulled to become king. She writes, quote, The idea of fitness to carry the sword is echoed in the Sword of Gryffindor's Return to worthy members of its true owner's house. And indeed, that idea continues later in Hallows, when Harry must brave a frozen lake to retrieve the sword, again committing an act of valor to prove the worth of his Gryffindor spirit. Plus, Rowling notes, quote, In other versions of the legend, Excalibur was given to Arthur by the Lady of the Lake and was returned to the lake when he died. So there's a bit of poetic resonance there as well. Within the magical world, though, it might seem curious why an acknowledged exceptional wizard like Godric Gryffindor would need a sword at all. What's the use of a sword when you have a wand and can do magic? (laughs) But it actually makes sense given the time period in which he lived. Rowling explains, quote, in the days before the International Statute of Secrecy, when wizards mingled freely with muggles, they would use swords to defend themselves just as often as wands. Indeed, it was considered unsporting <laughs> to use a wand against a muggle sword, which is not to say it was never done. Many gifted wizards were also accomplished duelists in the conventional sense, Gryffindor among them. Shorter explanation, swords are dope. Who'd win in a duel? Godra Gryffindor or John Snow? Goblin Silver oh! versus Valerian Steel? Sword of Gryffindor versus Longclaw? We'd love to find out. I would love to find out. It'd be incredible.
0: Jason, yeah, six years to the day since we met. Do you remember it? Vaguely. Didn't you smash down the front door, give Isaac a pig's tail, and tell me I was a podcast host? I forget the details. So let's split our nuggets, if not
1: our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Hallow's chapter seven and eight, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first.
0: Number one! When Arthur's Patronus arrives at Harry's birthday dinner to ward of Scrimgeour's impending appearance, we get this description. The Patronus dissolved into thin air, leaving Fleur's family peering in astonishment at the place where it had vanished. They might have just been confused overall by this surprise appearance and proclamation... But remember, too, that according to Rowling, as we mentioned in a previous restricted section, Dumbledore came up with the idea of using Patronus to send messages, and only members of the Order of the Phoenix can do so. So the Delacours may well be astonished because they just didn't know that this kind of magic was even possible. Further proof, not that we needed it, of Dumbledore's prodigious skill. Incredible. Number two, when Hermione goes toe-to-toe with Scrimgeour about the
1: actual letter of the law of the decree for justifiable confiscation, Scrimgeour says, Are you planning to follow a career in magical law, Miss Granger? To which she replies, No, I'm not. I'm hoping to do some good in the world. This is quite ironic given Hermione's ultimate career arc. Our girl will end up holding the same job as the man currently across from her. That's pretty good. Minister for Magic. And on her road to that posting, she will serve as deputy head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. Though in an alternate timeline, she will just go to pieces because she's not with Ron. (laughs) Shouts to Cursed Child.
0: Number three, as the wedding guests <laughs> begin we to arrive, Fred says, when I get married, I won't be bothering with any of this nonsense. You can all wear what you like. And I'll put a full body ban curse on Mum until it's all over. Wow. A truly devastating line to come across on a reread because Fred, sadly, will not live long enough to get married, perishing instead at the Battle of Hogwarts.
1: Genuinely very sad to read yes. this every time. Oh, new Fred
0: voice from you there. That was inspired. <laughs> Feeling like, by the you Vila. Know, listen, by we're by not the Vila getting, sex. I love the Vila. Let me tell you, but I, <laughs> I just feel like we're not getting a lot of time with him. So, I, you oh know. God. But no. I do love the Vila. It should not be allowed. As I said, it's sporting events. But I love a Vila. <laughs> Great at weddings, though. Great, fantastic at weddings.
1: <laughs> Number four, when Harry enters Ginny's room for the makeout sesh, he observes a picture of Gwynog Jones, captain of the All Witch Quidditch team, the Holyhead Harpies, on one of Ginny's walls. Great goal setting on display here from our girl Ginevra, who will go on to play professionally for the very same Harpy sports
0: fanatic. Number five, it's kind of funny that Arthur's Patronus is a weasel in light of the following passage from Order of the Phoenix at the first DA meeting from the book. Are you trying to weasel out of showing us any of this stuff? said Zachariah Smith. Here's an idea, said Ron loudly before Harry could speak. Why don't you shut your mouth? Perhaps the word weasel had affected Ron particularly strongly. Take the power back, Arthur.
1: Love bit. Number six. Chapter eight contains our first exposure to the physical form, the visual aesthetic of the sign of the Deathly Hallows, a symbol that has become essential shorthand for Potter fans everywhere. In the 2017 BBC documentary Harry Potter History of Magic, J.K.R. revealed that the symbol was subconsciously inspired by the film The Man Who Would Be King which contains a Masonic symbol. Apparently one day, after sketching Professor Sprout while watching the movie, Rowling learned that her mother had died. And in the BBC documentary, she reveals, quote, the Masonic symbol is very important in that movie. And it was literally 20 years later that I looked at the sign of the Deathly Hallows and realized how similar they are, she adds. When I saw the movie again and saw the Masonic symbol, I went cold all over and I thought, is that why the Hallows symbol is what it is? Incredible.
0: Wow. Number seven, Muriel's tiara obviously sets up some high comedy, but it has a couple of other purposes, too. Number one, it gets us thinking about goblin wrought items before the ownership of the sword becomes part of Grip Hook's plot. And two, it gets us thinking about notable headdresses before the reveal of Ravenclaw's lost item, a tiara-like object. Mal, are you planning to follow a career in magical law? No, I'm not. I'm hoping to do some good in the world. Oh, shade. Just like today's winner. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Hermione, oh, nee. Granger. You look wonderful. You look wonderful. <laughs> I have traveled very far to come here, to try to lock this shit down.
1: <laughs> Just an... Iconic stretch for Hermione. Yes. Where to even begin? Let's start with the small stuff. She gives Harry an actually really useful birthday present, the sneakoscope.
0: Yes, great. Tries to stop Ron from constantly cock-blocking Harry with Ginny.
1: If only she had gotten there a little quicker before he barged in with Harry mid-boner, mid-kiss. Yeah,
0: Harry like hunched over, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'll meet you in the yard in a second. Give me
1: a second. Just need a cold shower and then we can argue. She mercilessly dunks on Scrimgeour by well-actuallying him yeah. about magical law and also keeps Ron from ruining things. Oh, that was Giving very him tough. some telling glances. Ron's like, let me talk. Throwing me out some cover with key phrases, trying to salvage the situation as best she can. Dunking on the minister, though, is just
0: fucking a boss move she receives dumbledore's copy of tales of beetle the bard implicitly gaining dumbledore's trust that she is smart enough to figure out the code that an entire ministry team yes. has been working day and night to figure out and haven't been able to for 31 days and undoubtedly dumbledore knows that
1: she will help with all of their items yes. all of those clues and again Paris
0: repeating you look fun though.
1: victor crumb aka the lebron james of quidditch is openly fawning over there her. There are the
0: villas there, and he's like, "Where is her Miami?"
1: <laughs> Causing Ron to display quite a bit of jealous
0: rage. You see that? Look at him with those man jeans, all masculine and manly. <laughs> Hate him! Did you see, he's grown a stupid little beard. Now my action figure isn't up to date because <laughs> the facial hair is not correct. Now. <laughs> And as
1: we will see in the next chapter, yes. they're ready to roll when Kingsley's Patronus comes because of
0: her Right, She had prepared for this moment so that they could leave at the drop of Godric Gryffindor's hat.
1: She was just waiting on Ron's underwear. Everything else was packed.
0: <laughs> Free ball it, Ron.
1: Well, friends, binge mode has fallen. Scrimdrawer is dead. Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, Damn. are coming. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you were as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again next time, when we will be discussing chapters 9 through 11 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Till then, remember, we open at the close.
0: Are they together, Hermione and the red-headed boy? <laughs> I don't know. I think so. Okay. What about her? She's very attractive. I like her. This, the redhead who looks as if she is perhaps related to the boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's got a boyfriend. Sorry. And he's like a dick and fucking six five, huge muscles. Oh, what about uh, this villa here? You know, very attractive, as, as always. I love Avila. Uh, yeah, As Fred and George took them somewhere. I don't know. It's, you can hear the banging and the squeaking of springs from somewhere in the house. I don't know. Oh, okay. What about this older lady here? I like her as well. The mother? She's got a very intense energy that I like. Yeah, she is the mother of the groom, as well as a lot of the people here. Oh, that's too bad. What about this old lady? <laughs> the old one here. Who's uh, I, I saw you talking with? I know she's good. <laughs> Go for it, man. Okay.